Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. If you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, John the first chapter, that's where we have started and have been at for the last few weeks, uh, looking at this prologue, prologue at the beginning as before he gets into more of the narrative of this gospel, a prologue where he has established at the very beginning his thesis statement that Jesus is God. The deity of Christ is spelled out for us in verse 1. And today we're going to look now at the humanity of Christ, beginning in verse 14. It actually began last week, but really it's stated so clearly in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, or saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John makes much of Christ in this gospel. I would pray that as we go through it, that we would make much of Christ, that we would see Christ in ways we have never seen him or thought about him, that we would love him more and desire to walk closer to him as a result. It's almost like Christmas in July when you think about the context, the content of what we're going to see in this passage this morning, uh, God becoming a man. I was reminded of something that uh, uh, Paul Harvey said years ago. I heard this a long, long time ago, uh, and he was around before many of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about or were born, but uh, Paul Harvey was a radio commentator, and uh, he had this one particular uh, commentary one day that went something like this. I'm just going to take an excerpt of it, but uh, this is a gentleman sitting in his house on one winter night. It says this, minutes later, he, this man, was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, yet then another. At first, he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there, miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm. In a desperate search for shelter, they had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the thudding sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do was direct the birds to the shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he trampled through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide, and inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in, so he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted wide doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried to catch them. He couldn't. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. But instead, they scattered in every direction. Every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And that's when he realized they were afraid of him. They're afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of the some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? 
Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could become a bird now. I could be a bird and I can mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid and then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. That's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word came to be explained to us to explain to us God. That's our passage for today. Jesus came to show us God. Jesus came to show us the glory of God. Jesus came to demonstrate the attributes of God. Jesus came to explain God. His power, His majesty, His greatness, and all of those wonderful truths the Bible teaches about God. God became a man. That's what incarnation means. He became a man, and this is a very mysterious doctrine. It's very difficult to grasp, but there's no greater statement than the verses that we read earlier in this service in verses 14 through 18. In verse 1 of John 1, you have the deity of Christ. In John 1.14, you have the humanity of Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the deity of the Word, the deity of Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God incarnate. First point this morning, verse 14. The Word. We come back to that. It's not been mentioned since verse 1. We come back to the metaphor he's using to talk about how God has communicated to us. A Word is a a unit of communication. A sermon. God, the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God. That Word we see here in verse 14 became flesh. And God sent him to show us and to teach us and to communicate to us what we want, he wants us to know about him. This eternal, um, distinct, and equal one to God became a man. He's got two natures. Understand that. He has two natures, deity and humanity. Verse 1, verse 14. That staggers our imagination. I'm going to show you in just a moment. It's not part one and part of another. It's 100% each. We'll see that in just a moment. The gospel writers talked about this. The other gospel writers mentioned this. You recall the Christmas story in Luke 1. You recall the angel coming to Mary and telling her she's going to be with child. You recall Mary saying, how can this be? I've never known a man. And then you can see in verse 35 the angel answered and said to her, this is Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The virgin birth is necessary because Jesus is the Son of God, not the Son of of Joseph. 
That's Matthew's account. Excuse me, that's Luke's account from Mary's perspective. You go to the Gospel of Matthew, and you have Joseph's perspective. He's confused. How does she get pregnant? Who's the father? And then an angel appears to Joseph in Matthew 1.20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He says, this is going to fulfill what the prophet said in Isaiah. Notice this, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's the other gospel writer's account of this. John does it different. They're looking at the human side. John's looking at the divine side of Christ and who he is. The human perspective, divine perspective in the book of John. The word of God became flesh. Another key passage, I do want you to turn to this one. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Hold your hand in John 1. We'll come back, but I'm giving you a little Christology lesson here this morning. It's important that you understand that. You know why? Because there are false Christ out there. There are false Christ out there, people claiming to worship a Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible. You must understand who the true Christ is. That's why we have a Christology, a, a, a teaching from the Bible about who Jesus is. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's our example. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But notice verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That verse 7, he emptied himself, theologians call that uh, they use a term for that, kenosis. It means uh, emptying yourself of something. Uh, he emptied himself. Uh, understand something, though, that the second member of the Godhead did not empty himself of his deity. That's not what he did. He did not stop being God when he became a man. He simply set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. That's what he did. That's why you see so many times in the Gospels when in the power of the Spirit or the Spirit led Jesus here. You see Jesus submitting to the Spirit and to the Father. Never stopped being deity himself, but laid aside the independent use of those divine attributes in his ministry. He added human nature. He had both. This is not a loss of something for Christ. It was a adding on to Christ. He added a human nature, not 50% God, not 50% man. It's 100% each. And you guessed it. Theologians have another big word for that, the hypostatic union. They come up with, th- they come up with terms of co- when they have concepts that are hard to understand, so they give you a term that's hard to understand. This is called the hypostatic union, where you have 
the union of God and man. Mystery. 100% God, 100% man. All God, all man, all the time. Never, ever does he lose anything of his deity. He takes on humanity fully. It's it's deity clothed in humanity. Uh, Almost disguising yourself as a man. You know the story, Prince and the Pauper? Prince takes on the clothes of the pauper, lives in the slums. The pauper takes on the clothes of the prince, lives in the castle. Same idea. He became poor, 1 Corinthians says, so that we might become rich. So, he he came to identify with man. He came to identify with our human experience on earth, from the cradle to the grave. He came to save sinners. He came to be the Savior of the world. But he certainly came to be our high priest, one who understands our weaknesses, one who was made like us. So, and he wasn't here just for a weekend. See, some people say, why didn't you just come for the weekend? Friday you die, Sunday you're gone. Why didn't he just come for the weekend? He got it all done in one weekend. I guess I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, but he had to live a perfect life on this earth to satisfy the law of God. He had to earn righteousness. I can't, see, I need righteousness to go to heaven, and I don't have it. I need righteousness. I need 100% perfectly keeping God's law, and I cannot do that. He came and did that for me to earn righteousness for us. It's very, very important. And he gave, gave us time to get to know him and know things about him as Jesus of Nazareth. 33 years to get to know what God is like. You know, we could have been impressed by a glory cloud or a pillar of fire or God in a tornado. You see in the Old Testament? But it's very hard to fall in love with a tornado or a glory cloud or a pillar of fire. But here's one who was like us. All things. He became understandable even though he lost none of his essence whatsoever of being God. And you and I accept that pretty easily. God became a man. We celebrate every Christmas. We talk about it. We sing about it. But in Greek culture to which John is writing this, understand they were dualistic. Understand that when you say God became flesh, understand the Greek mindset would have been that the flesh is evil, the spirit is good. Understand that the goal of life to the Greek dualist was to get out of this body, which is a prison. You certainly wouldn't put God in it. So refute that. Yeah, Jesus might be the Savior and all of those things because they tried to bring this thinking into the church, in the early church, docetism, 
Dokeo is the word that came in thinking, no, no, here's what happened. At his baptism, the dove came down, spirit entered him right before his crucifixion. Spirit left him. Almost like the word doticism means appeared. He appeared as a man. God appeared that way. But that's not reality to the docetist. Because you can't have God in something as evil as flesh. And John, John is almost like in your face. The word became flesh. That's almost in your face language. <laughs> Get this. The one you reject as being in the flesh is in the flesh. He became a man. He deliberately leaves no room in that statement in John 1.14. God, a very God, became flesh. And as you see that, as you see, as we go through the book of John or any of the gospel writers, you see Jesus getting tired, getting hungry. You, you see Jesus uh, sad, weeping. You, you see Jesus uh, having to travel and the endurance of traveling from place to place and the things he would encounter that a man or woman would encounter walking on this earth. You see all of those things, and then he, he suffers physically. He bleeds and he dies. And, and when even, even when he rises from the dead, he's in a, still in a body. It's a glorified body. Don't totally understand all of this glorified body, but I know one day, because we have our identity with him, we too will have a glorified body. But he had a glorified body. You know what he says? I'm hungry. Give me some fish. I'm just saying the humanity of Christ is so important. Humanity of Christ was even important for Thomas, unless I put my hand, unless I see his scars. Same on. Same thing. So his deity is not diminished in any way. The one thing, the one thing that his humanity left behind that mine has is sin, okay? That's the one thing he did not have, was sin. That's the one thing I needed him not to have. If he's going to satisfy the wrath of God in my place, if he's going to satisfy the righteousness of God in my place and fulfill the law in my place, he cannot have sin. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful. He was flesh. He wasn't a sinner. He, he was treated like a sinner, 2 Corinthians. He who knew, knew no sin became sin. He was judged as a sinner because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And he came to take the judgment that I deserve in my place. And I've said this to you a few weeks ago, but I just remind you of it again. Very challenging concept, but Jesus is still the God-man at the right hand of the Father today. 
You say, Rod, what is the basis for saying that? Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Let me say it again. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The word dwells is present tense. At the right hand of the Father is a glorified God-man. That's why he's our mediator. That's why he is the one who goes to the Father on our behalf. So, he didn't just get rid of this shell when he left here and said, I had enough of being in a body. Uh, I'm God, I don't need this. No, he took that glorified body and we too one day will have a glorified body like him. Notice the word, go back, are you in John 1? Go back to John 1. I've had you in several places, but go to John 1. Notice in John chapter 1, it also says, and he dwelt among us. See that in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just want to say something about the word dwelt so you can see this pitching a tent. You've heard these, this language before, like going camping and pitching a tent. Um, Exodus in the, think Exodus in the tabernacle. Think that for a moment. Think God dwelling among his people in the Old Testament in a tabernacle. It, was a, a, it wasn't a temple, which was a permanent structure, but it was a tabernacle. It was a tent for traveling. Uh, you would take it down when you traveled and set it back up in the middle of the camp, and it represented the place where God would dwell. You had all of the... Uh, mercy seat and all of those things, the ark and all those things within that tabernacle. And God would dwell with his people, traveling with them as they went through the wilderness. John says something better is now tabernacling with us. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the omnipotent God has pitched his tent, has pitched his tent in the human race. Do you remember, if you've read the book of Ezekiel, uh, there's a vision in chapters 8 through 11 where Ezekiel sees the Spirit of God leaving. The sin of the nations was so horrible that God is leaving them. Uh, Ichabod, he's departing them. The Spirit of God leaves the temple, comes out the front door of the temple in his vision. It comes swirling around onto the eastern wall hovers there for a moment, goes up over the Mount of Olives, and is gone, departed. God left his people in terms of dwelling among them. When Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday, you know what gate he came in through? That eastern gate. He is tabernacling with us. He is with us. And we behold his glory. He came the same way, down from the Mount of Olives and through the Eastern Gate into the city of Jerusalem. We saw his glory. Um, we saw his attributes. We saw uh, back in 114, excuse me, yeah, 114, we saw his glory. Turn to First John just for a moment. This is John speaking. In John 1, 1 John 1, this is John saying this. 
This is John, the same author of the Gospel of John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, talking about seeing Christ, being with Christ, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the Father with the Father and it was manifested to us. We have seen and heard and we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Look, we touched him, we heard him, we saw him, we spent days upon days with him. Uh, He was in our midst and we and we saw these attributes, this glory. When I think of glory, I think of the attributes of God. We saw who he claimed to be. John says we saw his glory. We saw it every day. We touched him. We listened to him. We spent time with him. We lived with him. Back to 114. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This has caused confusion. This verse has caused confusion because of the phrase begotten. Does that mean, does that mean he was born? Does that mean he had a physical birth at some point? Well, in his humanity, yes. But in his deity, no. He is the eternal creator God. It, that phrase is an idiom, folks. That's an idiom that was used in their culture when you talked about someone who was unique and specially loved. It's a term that's used of Isaac. Isaac was the begotten son, the only begotten son of Abraham. Well, you know Abraham had other sons. So it's, it's not talking about birthed sons, human birthed sons or physically born sons. We're talking about one who is specially loved, one who is unique. We're talking about John 3.16, the only begotten Son of God, the one who is unique Son of God, the loved Son of God, the beloved Son of God. He is unique and special, and I love him. This is my beloved Son, he said at the baptism, specially favored Son of God, full of grace and truth, and I'm just, I'm going to say more about that later, but full of grace and truth, understand something, that he is everything God is, full of grace and truth. Everything you would think about God, everything the Old Testament says about God, that's Jesus, full of grace and truth. The Old Testament referred to him as a, referred to God as a God of truth, referred to him as a God of compassion, referred to him as a God of loving kindness who is slow to anger. Uh, Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. What am I saying? I'm simply saying John is, is saying here that Jesus, God in flesh, is everything God is and God was. Everything written about God is true about Jesus. We saw it. We saw it firsthand. We spent time with him. We saw this grace and truth. Those are attributes of God. They are attributes of the word that became flesh. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. 
Jesus' humanity represents the character of God. So he's what God is. Anything you think about God, he's saying that's who Jesus is. John the Baptist, notice in verse 15, John the Baptist testified about him. This is John 1.15. And cried out saying, we, heard, we talked about John the Baptist earlier in this prologue. We're going to talk about John the Baptist in later in this, this first chapter. But John the Baptist testified about him, cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for existed before me. He's saying, I know I'm older, but I'm less. Usually the older is the greater. John the Baptist is older, six months than his cousin Jesus. He's older, but he says, I'm less than him. I'm much less than him. He has a higher rank than I do. I, later he's going to say, I can't even untie the sandals. I am, I am much less than him. He existed before me. We'll talk more about John later, but uh, I'm telling you the honest truth, I don't know why. I don't know why John inserted that here. <laughs> I don't know. That's just me. But who might argue with the author of Scripture? You know, I was just saying, it, it just seems like it's a, a break in the flow here. But the point is, he's going to talk about, he's talked about John before, he's going to talk about John the Baptist again, but he testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. So to exalt Christ, yes, that's what this statement definitely does, to exalt Christ. And then we see in verses 16 and 17, he is the one who dispenses grace to us. Notice in verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. This just seems to flow right out of what he's just talked about at the end of verse 14. For, for all of his fullness we have, received, have all received and grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That statement, grace upon grace, um, Christ is full to the brim of what we need, grace. John Calvin said, we are utterly destitute of empty of any spiritual blessing. We need grace from God. Christ is the one that brings that to us. It's an interesting phrase, grace upon grace. It's a preposition there, upon it's anti is the preposition. It's a word of substitution. It's almost the same, like the same idea of Christ died in our place. And you're, in a sense, you're saying grace uh, instead of grace or grace, uh, uh, grace in place of grace is the idea of that statement, grace upon grace. Interesting, when you look at the next verse, which amplifies this a little bit, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There's some people who say, who say there was just law in the Old Testament and there was no grace in the Old Testament. Grace did not come until the New Testament. Some people say that. They say this verse supports that. They say that the Old Testament was all about what you had to do and what you were, the consequences for not doing it where the New Testament was all about grace. When Jesus came, he brought in grace. That's not a true statement. The Old Testament is grace. The New Testament is grace. 
In the Old Testament, God, through the law, God showed people what they needed to do to have a relationship with him. In the Old Testament, through the law, people understood who God was. That's revelation about himself. That's grace to people that don't deserve it. That's grace to people who are walking in darkness. God giving them information, giving them revelation about who he is. That's grace. Grace in the law would have been, this is, you've sinned, and this is the means by which you can be forgiven. And all of those sacrifices pointed for sure to Christ, but it was grace. It was an act of grace on God's part to show that to people even in the Old Testament. As Revelation progresses, things change, but it was by faith alone that you're saved and credited to, to you as righteousness. We saw that with Abraham in Genesis um, 15. So I guess all I'm trying to say in, in that is there was grace in the Old Testament and there's grace in the New Testament. Jesus certainly shows us grace by, we saw last week, by saving sinners who do not need or who are not worthy to be saved. So, so the law was good and the law was holy and salvation doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's by grace. And so I say, and you think about the individuals. You think about uh, David being forgiven for his sin. You think about Ruth, who was a Moabite, and her experiencing God's grace. And Manasseh experiencing God's grace. You see all kinds of people committing sins that were worthy of death, and they never died in the Old Testament. So you have grace demonstrated over and over in the Old Testament. And so when you read a phrase like this, grace, verse 16, grace upon grace, what you're saying is there was grace, but now there's more grace. That's all you're saying. You're saying that grace is uh, some grace, more grace. That's all that statement means. It's certainly not meant to say there was never any grace before Christ came. It's always been about grace. God is always related to people on the basis of grace because we're all unworthy and we're all sinners. So in Christ, God has just stepped from one level of grace to another level of grace. I was reading a book, uh, a book about grace and truth. Just a little side note here, because, you know, when I read that statement, I think, well, God, how do I imitate Christ? He was one who had showed grace and showed truth. What a balance. Do you know how hard it is to have grace and truth at the same time? You thought about that? Some of you are wired to be very truth-oriented. You like Bible study, and you like uh, rules. You like Life defined by those kinds of things. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that you like life like that. You like theology and you like truth. You're a truth person. That is your bent. And some of you are very grace-oriented. You really don't care much for rules. Um, You find rules at times just are legalistic. Uh, 
He said this, this is a quote from him in his book. He said, truth-oriented Christians love Bible study and scriptures and theology, but sometimes are quick to judge and slow to forgive, strong on truth and weak on grace. He says that's a truth-oriented Christian. A grace-oriented Christian is uh, someone who loves forgiveness and freedom, sometimes neglects Bible study and sees moral standards as legalism. They are strong on grace and weak on truth. Jesus, he could do both of these things. We seem to struggle with this a little bit, grace and truth. And you think about, as, as Alcorn points out in his book, countless mistakes in marriage and parenting and ministry and other relationships are a failure to balance grace and truth. Parents who are all about truth with their kids can exasperate their kids. Too many rules, always on them, not showing a whole lot of grace then some parents are far too grace-oriented, no rules, reason they sometimes have kids that run all over them. And if you're not being truthful with them, uh, because you're not being truthful with them, and no rules, no truth. Randy Alcorn says this, he says, when we offend everybody, it is because we have taken on the truth mantle without grace. When we offend nobody, it's because we have watered down the truth in the name of grace. Let me say that again. When we offend everybody, it is because we have taken on the truth mantle without grace. When we offend nobody, it is because we have watered down the truth in the name of grace. See, how, see why this is so tough? Sometimes we can be guilty of just being obnoxious with the truth and not gracious at all. And some of us gracious with no truth at all never confront sin and never deal with issues. This is tough. Jesus did it perfectly, grace and truth. And if we want to epitomize him, this is a good reminder of what we should seek as a goal in our life. And folks, I would say it is even a desire for that to be the goal of our church. We're big on truth. We uphold the Bible. And I know people come to this church because they want to hear the Bible taught. But we cannot do that at the expense of grace and showing grace. We have to see Christ as grace and truth, and we need to be as gracious as possible, uncompromising the truth, which we are firmly committed to, but at the same time, we want to do it in the most gracious way possible. We want to tell people the truth with a smile on our face. You know, it's just kind of like God wrote it, I didn't, but he knows what's best for all of us. And you know what? I'm a sinner too. I hold to this truth, but I too know that I don't always follow it perfectly. I too fall short. And I'm thankful for his grace that comes along and picks me up when I fail. That's, that's, that's how we are to be to the world. That's how we are to be to to others, full of grace and full of truth. Wow, hard, hard balance to maintain. We, we need to always be willing to show compassion because we're sinners too. At the same time, we want to communicate truth with graciousness. And finally, our last verse, go to 
verse 18, the Word is the explainer. Verse 18 of John 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The word explained is the word exegete. Um, No one has seen the invisible God at any time. Uh, God is invisible. You've seen, they saw glory clouds, these clouds, they saw the pillars of fire, they saw the tornado. Moses saw the afterglow of God as he passed by. But no one's seen God, he's invisible. But the only begotten God, isn't it interesting he calls him the only begotten God? It's the idea that God loving God, he's in his bosom, God loving God and God sending God to explain God. You see that language there? God loving God, God loving the Son who's in his bosom, God sending the Son, God, God sending God, and God sent him to explain God. Figure that one out. But that's what he did. He's the keyhole. The, the, the word became flesh to be the keyhole that we get a glimpse of the infinite. You know, and there's, we can't see the infinite God in, as a spirit. We would need infinite vision. But he came to explain him to us. And everywhere we go in the book of John, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Excuse me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Show us God, show us God. I'm God, I'm God. I and the Father are one. You're looking at God right now. Look at me. Pretty, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the perfect communicator, the God-man, the perfect communicator. He lays one hand on God and one hand on us, the perfect communicator. And and you think about, and I'm going to close with this, you think about some ways he's explained God to us. Uh, He's explained God's power to us. You see him calming the sea, healing a blind man. There's nothing that God cannot do. He's an all-powerful God. He's omniscient. Nathaniel, I saw you when you were not, when you were in that specific place under that tree. Omnipresent, he he, he was located in a specific place. Justice, he rebukes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Holiness, he lived a perfect life. Who convicts me of sin? No one said a word. He was compassionate. He weeped at Lazarus' tomb. He raises a widow, uh, cast out demons. He's a jealousy of God. He goes into the temple. This is my father's house with a whip. I mean, you can just see so many things. Eternality, he takes, he looks at the religious leaders and says, before Abraham I am, I've always existed I mean, he's explaining God as he does all of these things. Sovereignty, the temple tax scene in Matthew 17. uh, They shouldn't even be charging me a tax, Jesus said. I am the son of the owner. But so they won't be offended. Peter, you go fish, and there'll be a coin in the belly of that fish, and we'll pay the taxes with that coin. 
that's sovereignty. Immutability, uh, he's faithful. He shows the faithfulness of God. Jesus' coming was all the way back in Genesis 3.15, thousands of years before, when it said that the seed of woman, there's coming one in the seed of woman who will crush the head of Satan. See, he's explaining God as he goes. Patience of God the woman who'd been married five times and now the man you're living with is not even your husband. Just the patience of God, the love of God, uh, love for God so loved the world that he sent his son to die. The cross is probably the greatest explanation of all of God's attributes. You have mercy, you have justice, you have compassion, you have love. Jesus explains God. That's why I said to you earlier in the series that Jesus is the best sermon that God ever sent about himself. Jesus explains God to us. Father, I thank you so much for our time this morning. I thank you as we come to this communion table for your grace in letting us participate in the reminder that it brings to our hearts. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.